Hi, everyone. Thanks for joining us again for this latest podcast from the Herbert Smith Freehills Pensions team. This is the latest in our series on pensions and ESG, following on from the previous podcast that we released with Ashley Hamilton Claxton from Royal London Asset Management at the end of last year. I'm pleased today to be joined by Emma Douglas, Head of DC at Legal and General Investment Management. Emma, thank you for joining us. No, it's a great pleasure to be here. Thanks, Tim. Great. And today we're going to be exploring a number of issues related to environmental, social and governance issues in the context of pension schemes and considering how trustees, asset managers go about managing those risks. Emma, before we get into some of the detail, could you just tell us a bit about your role at LGIM and also how you at LGIM have been approaching uh, this issue of managing ESG risks? Yeah, absolutely, Tim. So I'm head of our defined contribution pension business at LGIM, and that has around um, 110 billion of assets. So we think we're the largest DC provider in the market. And those assets include our investment only platform and our workplace business. And that encompasses our master trust and our group personal pension. So we've got around 4 million members in our workplace business. And in terms of ESG, well, we've always believed that, you know, ESG, so environmental, social and governance risks are financially material. And we do think responsible investing is essential to mitigate risks, to unearth investment opportunities and strengthen long term returns for clients. And from the investment point of view, we really see there's two elements to incorporating ESG considerations. So that's asset ownership and asset allocation. So we do have a responsibility to affect positive change in the companies and assets in which we invest and, of course, for society as a whole. So to us, this means active ownership and engagement through stewardship. So using the money that we manage on behalf of our members to influence the companies that we invest in. So Elgin's active ownership approach, which is applied across all of our funds, means that Elgin works with companies, policymakers and other investors to create sustainable value over a long term horizon through engagement with those companies and voting. And I'll certainly be talking about this more later in the podcast. And then the other bit is asset allocation. And from that point of view, our main default funds for DC investors use ESG factors when deciding about the strategic asset allocation of our funds. So this is where we take account the overall investment views across our teams, the assessment of of fundamental and macro risks. And that obviously includes climate considerations and risks. And then we also take account of ESG considerations in the building blocks for the strategies. And we have a range of default funds for DC members. I don't think one size can ever fit all in DC. And some use more ESG building blocks than others. So we've got our Future World Multi-Asset Fund. It's a default strategy in its own right. And it's also a key component within our target date fund strategy. And it has around 50% of its assets invested in explicitly ESG tilted index blocks. And that's actually over 90% of the listed equity and investment grade corporate bonds. So as you'll appreciate, it's easier to apply ESG tilts to equity holdings, but we are making progress across some of the other asset classes as well. Your focus is obviously very much on the DC side of things. In the context of DC, you've obviously got a number of different players. Uh, So the provider, trustees, the asset managers, 
and ultimately it's the members who decide how their funds are invested. So who do you think has the primary responsibility in that context for ensuring assets are invested in an ESG aware way? And also what role does a does an employer have in that? Sure. I mean, I think the primary responsibility, and I'm sure you'd agree with me, has to be the trustees and the providers from a purely regulatory perspective, because they're the ones who choose the investments on behalf of the members. And most particularly, they're the ones who are going to be creating the default strategies for the members. And of course, we know that the majority of members in DC are in default funds. And there's nothing wrong with this. It just makes the default strategy the most important decision you take in a DC scheme. But, you know, it's always nuanced, isn't it? So trustees and providers can't use something that doesn't exist. So asset managers do have to create the funds and strategies that can be used. And employee benefit consultants have to rate and recommend them. And of course, the DC pension market is a complex one with lots of parties involved and all have their part to play here. Then you asked about employers, and I think that's a really important one. So employers can help by finding out what their members want, by asking them, and then as far as practicable, looking to offer defaults and investment choices that are aligned to these member views. And I do think it's also becoming increasingly important for employers to reflect their corporate values in their pension schemes. So, for example, we're clearly seeing some corporates who are mainly focused on high-level ESG integration, whereas others want to go further, probably aligned with the corporate views, and achieve stronger carbon emission reduction, and they just have more explicit ESG views. And then, of course, the members. You know, The members can make some noise about what they want. They can respond to surveys. Yeah, and they do. When we ran a survey recently, it was across our Master Trust members. We were just asking people about their ESG views. We said we'd plant a tree for every survey completed. Boy, we ended up planting lots of trees. You know, members were really interested to tell us what their views were. And I think that, you know, also campaigns from um, organisations like Make My Money Matter, you know, Be a Net Zero Hero, you know, all of these things are getting members started to get really interested in their investments. But in the overall scheme of things, it would be wrong to say that members have got the primary responsibility here. Mm. You mentioned earlier about the importance of engagement with companies. And I, I know in 2016, LGM introduced its Climate Impact Pledge, where it uh, committed to engaging with the largest companies across six different sectors that are key to kind of meeting global change targets. Could you tell us a bit about how that works in practice, how, how the engagement works and how successful has it been and, and also what happens when engagement doesn't work? Sure, yeah. So under the Climate Impact Pledge, we started out by focusing on the largest companies in really the sectors that are crucial to accelerating or halting the energy transition. So that's energy, transport and financials. And also we focused on deforestation and land use change. So that would lead us to the food and retail sectors. We then assessed all of these companies and ranked them against a wide range of indicators from governance structures to business targets and lobbying activities, just so we could really get a well-rounded view of their exposure to climate risks and opportunities. And then in our dialogue with these companies, we sought to help them do three things. So to start off with, disclose more. 
Secondly, form robust strategies around ESG. And third one, commit to meaningful targets. And then you asked, you know, what happens when companies don't engage? So when they fail to demonstrate sufficient action, we voted against the chair of their boards. And that would be using the voting rights across all of Elgin's entire book and divested from those companies within some of our funds. And crucially, when we took those steps, we actually named the companies that we targeted, just as we highlighted those who were worthy of praise. So far, we've sanctioned 13 companies, including ExxonMobil, MetLife and China Construction Bank. And what we found is that these public sanctions, you know, really making that dialogue public, absolutely elevated our conversations with companies and it often motivated them to address our concerns. So in 2019, we actually saw two of the divested companies reinstated in our funds following improvements. And in 2020, one of that pair, Dominion Energy, they went even further. They adopted a target for net zero emissions. And in 2020, we also reinstated Japanese automaker Subaru as they had significant improvements in their emission targets and climate disclosures. And so we've definitely seen this naming laggards have a real impact in them changing their ways. And then recently, we've renewed and drastically expanded this climate impact pledge. So we're now broadening the pledge's reach to include hundreds more companies, with, of course, the ultimate goal of aiming to achieve net zero carbon emissions globally by 2050. And that's clearly an objective of critical importance to our clients and society as a whole. And our engagement will continue to carry those meaningful consequences, both through our voting activity and through our capital allocation. So, you know, we've actually found that this engagement with consequences resonates well with our membership. And, you know, we can give examples of where we've engaged with companies. So one of the ones that we often use is BP, you know, because sometimes members are quite surprised to see that, you know, our funds are actually invested in BP. Then we explain that, you know, we worked really hard with BP to, you know, secure its support for a motion that was calling BP to explain how its strategy is consistent with the Paris Agreement on Climate Change. And through this voting, through this engagement with BP, you know, they are now announcing industry-leading targets, net zero emissions from their operations, net zero carbon emissions from the oil and gas it digs out of the ground, and a 50% reduction in the carbon intensity of all the products it sells. So we can actually show real results from this engagement. You know, these stories, I think, are vital to bring all of this to life for people. Yeah, I agree. I, it's encouraging to hear how effective this kind of engagement can be because I often hear sometimes quite sceptical views about the merits of it and where it can lead. So that's that's really good to hear. One of the things that often gets conflated when you're talking about kind of ESG and, and climate issues is the subject of moral and ethical considerations versus financial considerations. And that's something that we're often grappling with and, and, and having to draw, draw lines. And I, I just wonder how you go about that within LGIM and how you ensure that when you're developing and implementing ESG policies, that it's it's not just reflecting kind of your own or your team's kind of moral or ethical views, but actually is looking at the kind of financial impact of those ESG considerations on, on the fund. 
Yeah, it's a really good point, Tim. I mean, uh, I think some of the earlier discussions around ESG, you know, uh, are around, well, it, it, is this ethical? You know, how, how does it link into my moral views? And as I said at the start, you know, we firmly believe that the ESG factors are financially material. So we do have specialist ethical funds in the range, but ESG is absolutely part of the daily job of our fund managers. They've got robust processes in, in place to assess risks and incorporate different factors in the asset allocation and fund construction processes. And all of our auto-enrollment defaults, that they do have some minimum standards of exclusion in them. And this is in line with LGIM's Future World Protection List. And these exclusions include manufacturers and producers of controversial weapons, perennial violators of the UN Global Compact, and pure coal miners. Now, most people are happy with that as a list of exclusions. I've rarely had anyone say to me that they really want to be invested in controversial weapons. But of course, we do get questions from particularly members and sometimes trustees as well, who want us to go further and are surprised when they see that you know our Future World Fund holds oil and tobacco companies, for instance. And there, of course, the answer is just what I've been talking about. You know, we explain the engagement, the consequences, and that we hold these companies so that we have the right to vote and engage with them and to bring about change that you wouldn't be able to bring about if you didn't hold the stock. And of course, for some members, if they don't want to hold these companies on moral grounds, there are specialist funds that do have exclusions to cater for this. So, for instance, we've recently launched a fossil fuel free fund and we do run ex-tobacco portfolios. But we've generally seen that for most members, they really appreciate this engagement story. And we've actually seen that through our pilot project with Tomello. So that's the fintech platform that allows members to indicate how they would vote on key issues of the companies that they hold in their funds. So when they log on, members see the companies they hold in their funds. And to be honest, that in itself is a revelation to most, as our research has shown that most members don't realise that their pension fund is invested in companies. I'm not blaming members for this. But, you know, people don't really engage at that level with their pension. But when they see the key votes at these companies and they can search votes by by company or by topic, such as plastics, climate, gender diversity, you know, we actually saw over 3,500 votes cast in our pilot, which is only across two companies. And then what we do, we follow up with members as to how the vote's gone and how Elgin voted and why. I want to pick up on a few more aspects but before I do I just remind listeners that this is part of a series that we're we're running future episodes are going to feature specialists from Rail Pen and, and the PPF so do subscribe to our UK pensions blog to make sure you receive those Emma you mentioned I think the approach at Elgim is active management one of the common pushbacks from trustees of DC schemes that I hear is particularly whether invested in passive funds that there's little they can do on ESG because they're they're just passively managed. What would you say to, to that? Yeah, well, actually, we do a lot of index management. We prefer that as a, as a name to passive at LGIM. And um, most of the funds that we use in DC are actually index funds. And we are really quite passionate about the fact that passive funds doesn't have to mean passive ownership. So, you know, as I've been talking about, you know, you can hold all the stocks 
But what you really need to do is then vote and engage with the companies that you're holding in your portfolios. And, you know, active or passive, it's really important to make sure that your asset manager votes on behalf of the trustees and the members and actually walks the walk. And, you know, particularly in DC, it's really important to understand, you know, who are the underlying managers who are running these index building blocks, not just the person who's doing the asset allocation or the manager who's doing the asset allocation at the top. And of course, trustees don't need to do all of this investigation on their own. There's several think tanks out there who assess the engagement and voting activities of fund managers, such as Share Action and Influence Map. And they look at, at a range of responsible investment themes, as well as having that specific focus on climate change. So, you know, Share Action, you know, Elgin's got an A rating from Share Action. And, you know, we're one of only five A-rated managers, so we're really proud of that. Then Influence Map, we're actually rated A-plus by them, which is always a good exam grade, I feel. But, you know, that rating goes down, you know, there's even a manager that's rated D-minus. So there's all of those bits of you know information out there that are coming from accredited organisations. You know, trustees can find this. It's an objective view of... Is your manager voting? What is your manager doing? And and obviously, we think that the ones that get A and A plus are, are, are really good. <laughs> and of course, you know, the other way you can incorporate ESG factors in a more systemic way in passive funds is to look for the passive funds that are tilted towards better ESG scoring companies and away from the worst scored ones. So it's still an index fund, but it has some tilts on it. And so that's quite an efficient way to implement your ESG views. But there is still a danger that that could be a tick box if there isn't underlying voting and engagement with the companies behind that. You've given us some examples there of how trustees can, as you say, make sure the asset managers are, are walking the walk. Again, that's something we, we're we often quizzed on by trustees. Do, do you have any other tips for how trustees can ensure that their asset managers are taking ESG risks seriously and also how they ensure they get the information that they need to be able to effectively monitor that and and also report on it. Yeah, absolutely, Tim. So, you know, in order to support trustees with their increasing disclosure requirements and the ESG scrutiny, we would suggest that they hold their asset manager to account in three key areas. So first off, you know, how are they managing financially material risks and opportunities, including ESG issues? And that could be via increased ESG allocation in default funds. You know, it could be via the tilting, as we've talked about. But, you know, trustees are definitely now expected to scrutinise the way in which ESG issues are incorporated as part of the investment process, you know, right through from asset managers' governance, right through to their sources of ESG data. Second point, you know, I think it's really important to ask to what extent members' views are taken into account. And the third point, you know, how can trustees better understand and explain these voting and stewardship activities that are conducted on the scheme's behalf? Trustees really do need to review these stewardship activities, you know, and they include voting and engagement with companies and policymakers that are undertaken by their designated asset managers. 
And of course, there's going to be increasing focus on how we report on this. And I would certainly welcome standardization in that area. At the moment, I think there's quite a lot of different ways that managers report on ESG. And that just makes it quite confusing, I think, for trustees to compare approaches. But hopefully, with some of the, you know, the TCFD um, measures coming into place, we'll actually see some greater standardization. Yeah. And um, just looking ahead, we can expect, I think, to see a number of new developments in this area and particularly with the COP26 conference at the end of this year. Uh, I think it's going to continue to have a, a very real focus. And the DWP has also indicated that it's planning to introduce additional new requirements, particularly for larger schemes, to produce kind of TCFD aligned disclosures, as you mentioned, but also to undertake scenario analysis, set metrics and targets and, and measure their performance against them. How prepared do you think the industry is for what's coming and for all of these new assessments that are going to need to be conducted? I think there's a lot of focus in the industry on ESG and, and all the all the issues that are encompassed around that. I mean, I was just saying to you at the start, you know, there's barely a client meeting that I attend where, where this isn't you know, a core part of the agenda. So there's a lot of focus on this. I think that probably we're still a bit behind in terms of measurement. And measurement is really important because you can't manage what you don't measure. So I'm a really big fan of industry standard reporting and disclosures. And that way, fund managers understand what they need to deliver. And so they can build systems accordingly. And as I said, it makes the job of trustees a little easier because they can hopefully compare like with like. But I do think at the moment, you know, we have got very different ways of reporting ESG. I've seen many different metrics. You know, it could be percentage of portfolio that is ESG tilted to actual estimated amounts of tons of carbon reduction, or that could be a percentage estimate. And there's also a lot of targeting net zero by 2050, which is admirable, but generally much less information on how that will be achieved. So I think getting into this granular detail will be an important challenge for the industry over the next few months. And if I could just ask one final question, how concerned are you about potential kind of legal challenges or, or kind of member complaints in this space? Last year, we saw a case in Australia where a member took uh, a leading uh, superannuation fund to court over their failure to really be able to demonstrate they were taking climate risk seriously. Is, is that a concern that you have or, or do you think that perhaps is overstated? I mean, I think that, you know, the, the UK is generally a slightly less litigious society overall. But what I have seen to him is so much more member engagement and interest in this area. So it wouldn't surprise me if we see, you know, more complaints, maybe if it's not actually court cases or, or legal action or more demands or asks that actually their portfolios, you know, their, their investments, their pension should be invested in a way that aligns with their principles. So, you know, there's some of our clients where there's definitely, you know, sort of active groups that are very much trying to, you know, influence the, the trustees or the employer as to how the pension money is invested. And as I was talking about earlier, Make My Money Matter is, you know, is really trying to stir people up on the importance of getting their pension invested in the right way. So, you know, I'm not not necessarily thinking it will lead to legal action, but I do think there is a groundswell of opinion here that, you know, will will find a way to get out there in market. 
Great. Well, Emma, thank you so much for taking the time to speak to me today and, and for sharing your views and experience on what is a really important and, and an evolving subject area. Thanks very much, Tim. And thank you also to everybody who's listened to this podcast. As I said, this is part of our series on pensions and ESG. To receive future episodes, then subscribe to our UK Pensions blog, Pension Notes, or subscribe via SoundCloud. And you can also download episodes on iTunes or Spotify. So thanks again, Emma, and thank you for listening.